This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta. Seeks to be Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon family, last week we started off our series on on the book of James, and we spent some time looking at just how we should be viewing trials. Right? We, we looked at how God knows the trials we're in. We talked about trials having purpose, uh, even though it doesn't seem like it at the time. Really, most times it doesn't seem like it. There, there, there's a, a purpose there. And we talked about how we need to, to realize and then find a way to take joy that God's, uh, God's purposes in these trials is to perfect us, to make us more mature. When we encounter trials, we, we seek God for His wisdom, His perspective, His purpose for us in that trial. So that even though trials can become uh, difficult, they also are part of what God uses to make us who he has created us to be. Today, we're going to go through another portion of James 1, and we're going to talk more about uh, what we should do through those trials, what, how we should boast through trials and temptation. If you ever, when you read the book of James, James could seem like he's, he's all over the place. Because James talks about so many different issues throughout these few chapters. As we said last week, much of James uh, reads like a wisdom book. It reads like Ecclesiastes or Proverbs. And in those wisdom books, it kind of jumps from topic to topic. It's not really linear. And James works the same way. And so this first chapter, James is kind of giving us an overview of the next chapters to come. He's kind of giving you some of these quick ticket items that he's going to uh, go into more detail later in, in the book. And so we're in these uh, the verses uh, 9 through 17. We're going to walk through those verses, and we're going to look at some specific things that James has to say about how our faith should inform how we boast through trials and how we handle or deal with temptation. There's a story about a father and a son. Father was having a conversation with his son, and they were living close to kind of a body of water or river. And uh, that father had told his son, listen, I I don't want you ever swimming in that river. And the son responds, okay, dad, I got it. Uh, And then later, he came home with a pair of wet swimming trunks. And the father's like, where have you been? The son says, well, I was swimming in the river. And the father's like, didn't I tell you? not to go into that river. Son's like, yes, sir, you did. Father said, well, why? Why did you do it? And the son said, well, I had my trunks with me, so I couldn't resist the temptation. And the father said, well, why did you even bring your trunks with you at all then? And the son said, well, so I'd be prepared to swim in case I got tempted. What we see is that temptation is a very real thing. And the point of that story is to point out just how real temptations are and what we do to deal with things that should be a trial, but we've made them into a temptation. The pressure we feel when we're tempted, it's so great because temptations move us away from God's purposes in the actual trial. A trial and a temptation are often the same circumstance. The question is, what does that circumstance bring out in us? 
Does it move us away from God? It becomes the temptation. Does it actually engender more trust and engender more of a reliance on God? That's the purpose of the actual trial. So let's start uh, in, in James chapter 1, verse 9. We're going to read all the way through uh, chapter, uh, chapter 18. Uh, James 1, verse 9 reads as such, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be de uh, deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, these verses can, again, seem very counterintuitive. I mean, look at the first, look at verse nine. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in, its, in his exaltation. Now, ultimately here, we know this, that what James is doing is comparing these poor believers to wealthy believers and what it means to be poor without material possessions, to be lacking in any material fashion. And so J James is telling these folks, these Christians, hey, if you find yourself to be in humble circumstances, now what is that, that humble circumstances, what is, what is he really talking about? Well, we know uh, the ESV and the New King James says lowly brother. Uh, the Living Translation says believers who are poor. The King James says brother of low degree. Ultimately, these are, these are people who are poor, as we said. Here's the problem. Nothing in this text, right? Nothing in that portion of the text tells us the reason for this person to think they're exalted. Because everything about these circumstances are low. We can objectively say that in a society that values wealth, if you do not have wealth, you are lowly in that society, right? In that view, you are the lowly one. And yet James is saying, Boast in being exalted. Boast in your exaltation. Now, how is this possible? Well, remember, we covered this last week. Remember, James is talking and writing to these Christians, these Jewish Christians. Here James is, we said before, the half-brother of Jesus. James is someone who uh, was the, the leader of the first real church after Jesus' resurrection, lived for roughly about 20 years, and then was martyred, murdered horribly afterwards. Here James is teaching uh, these believers who are dealing with real persecution because ever since they've become followers of Jesus, these Jewish Christians, these some people might call them Messianic Jews, these, these Jewish believers who are following Jesus, dealing with persecution as a result of it, suffering persecution, how in the world could they ever feel exalted? 
as we said, they don't have a lot of material possession. James is going to talk a lot about material possession in the coming weeks. But here's what James is saying. James is saying, don't find your identity in the lack of material possessions. Don't uh, make sure that you understand God's kingdom doesn't place value on material wealth in ways that earthly kingdoms do. In other words, James is saying your exaltation does not come from what you have. It comes from who you have, and more importantly, who has you. When you understand that, when these believers could understand that, they would go, we may not have these wealthy possessions, but we realize that our value isn't rooted in that. Our value is in the fact that we have Jesus and Jesus has us. Verse 10 is where really James spent more of his attention. Verse 10 again, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. First of all, the fact that he even says, let these wealthy people boast in their humiliation. How do you boast about being humbled? And that's different. It's different from boasting about being humble and boasting about being humbled. Here, uh, this humiliation isn't meaning embarrassment. It means taking the role of a servant. Here, uh, uh, this, this idea of being humbled, being brought low, why would someone, how is someone who is of great repute, having an incredible status in, this, in society, how is it possible for them to be brought low or to be humbled? Well, because they have been humbled before God. Why? By the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit being reminded about what their status actually is based on in God's economy. Being reminded that our wealth, our material possessions, they do not give us any in increased credibility or value in God's eyes. You can really, listen, when, when you can start to mistake and even conflate what makes you valuable. Most of us do at times. What makes us valuable? What is it that's going to bring me or that's going to prove that I'm valuable to people? And there's no question in society, if you have a lot of material possessions, you, you are valuable to certain people in society. Your, your riches can be incredibly valuable for really good endeavors, right? But the mistake gets made when we think that my value to you is the same as my value to God. And that is not the case. And if we don't have that type of faith-informed vision, that faith-informed uh, way of, of evaluating ourselves, that faith-informed way of dealing with our own lack or, or abundance, then the trial that should be perfecting us becomes a temptation that draws us away. So the rich person realizes that his or her wealth brings them no greater value in the eyes of God. W what does this really mean? Because he's using this word boast. We realize that typically boasting is a word that we'll use pejoratively. Anytime you're boasting, we look at that as a negative thing. If somebody says they were boasting, we don't ever really commend that as a valuable attribute. And yet, the scriptures don't necessarily say boasting in and of itself is wrong. The question is, what is it that you're boasting about that will determine whether the boasting itself is godly or not? You see, uh, you're going to boast, you and I, in our flesh, in our nature, we're going to boast about whatever we believe will bring us the highest value and the highest attention. 
you're going to boast in the things that you believe will bring you the most attention. That may be money. It may be fame. It may be social media followers. It may even be things that seemingly are things that we don't even, that we agree are not good, right? Things that we agree are are bad or hard or difficult. Things, it may be trauma that we've endured. It may be real anxiety that we deal with regularly. And those things should be shared and those things should be dealt with. And we need to have a community that embraces and encourages sharing that, right? But be very careful that our posture or that our identity isn't rooted in and camped out in the trauma or in the anxiety. Because what happens is my identity becomes rooted in the fact that I get anxious a lot. My identity becomes rooted in the fact that some of these things will really, really kind of take over and then I'm not able to go anywhere else but stay there. So, so here, uh, one of the things that can happen is sometimes you, you want to be able to kind of follow Jesus and be able to go to these places that God calls us to, but we can almost be hamstrung because in the middle of a conversation, there's sometimes there are folks that constantly will remind you, well, I get really anxious about this, so, so this is something that I'm just not sure I can, I can do. Now, hear me, there are places, plenty of places where we need to be uh, uh, respectful, and we need to be empathetic because I know for myself, areas that will bring anxiety, we've got to deal with real issues that are there. The question is not whether or not we have anxiety. We do. And Christians are going to have them. That's the reason why the Jesus, uh, Jesus says to cast our anxieties on him. But the question is, do we camp out there? Because if we camp out there, it turns almost into a way of boasting when we live there. If that's the main refrain that we always go to, there's a boasting in that as well. And that becomes more temptation than a trial. So what does healthy boasting look like? What does it mean to boast in a way that says our faith informs our boasting and not our frailty? The way that the, way that, uh, the, the Bible talks about boasting throughout the scriptures is very telling. This word for boasting, the word that's used here in the Greek, is, is, is identical to the word that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. This word for, uh, for, for, being, for boasting shows up in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Listen to this. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth, but the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. That's what healthy, godly, faith-infused boasting looks like. In other words, you boast in the things that that describes a big God. You don't boast in the things that describes a big you. You see this again in Psalm 34 too. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Psalm 44, we boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever, Selah. Paul says this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, I'm boasting in the things that reflect who God is. I ought not be boasting in the things that reflect how great I am. 
And this is not the same as if people give you an attaboy or girl and pat on the back and congratulations and, and recognition. That's okay. The question is, and that from a heart posture standpoint, do I camp out? Do I see my greatest value in reflecting on and conveying to others just how great I am? This was a big deal, right? This, is, this has to have been a big deal during the first iteration of the church. Because think about this, you've got so many believers who are without, who are struggling, but you also have believers that have. And we're going to see later, this does tie it together eventually, we're going to see later, James is going to decry some of the believers who, uh, some of the issues that are happening where believers who have, believers who have material possessions, are not caring for those who don't. Why? Because they're, they're their greatest value is shown in where their greatest boasting is. If your boasting is in your ability to make lots of money and your ability to have lots of things and you like to show it off and floss and show off the bling, whatever it is, that's going to be your greatest value. That's, a, that's really who you are. So you're not going to be somebody that's loving others and caring and saying, how do I take what I have to benefit others and not myself? Sakes is verse 11. Verse 11 For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes in the same way the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Now listen, this has nothing to do with showing that riches are bad or wealth is bad. It isn't. The scriptures say that money answers all things. There's no question that there are deep material needs, and money is a huge blessing and a tool that can be hugely loving and ways to show love and generosity to others. There's no question about that. But the question is whether or not the money or the wealth becomes an idol that that we praise and that we boast in. And what God is showing is the folly of placing your greatest value in those things. Because just as beautiful things in nature eventually pass away, so does the beauty of riches. Ultimately, he's saying, your riches are going to wither away, and so will you. And since that is an incontrovertible truth, then your best bet is to place your greatest value on the things that reflect who God is, and not on the things that reflect what you have. Verse 12, blessed is the one who endures trials, Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This is a very interesting word or phrase. That phrase stood the test uh, in the old King James. And really, the, the, the actual Greek word there is the word approved. And the reason why approved and stood the test as a phrase are interchanged so often is because of the way that the, the Greek word dokimos has often been used. This word, dokimos or dokimos, this word is one that has been translated approved. And here's something that's interesting. In ancient Palestine, we've known this because there have been some excavations within, uh, throughout ancient Palestine where they have found thousands of pieces of pottery. And on those pieces of pottery, you see a stamp that's on the, on the bottom of some of the pieces that they have. And it seems that the potters had a practice of whenever they would make a a vessel or make some, uh, like a vase, they would put it in the furnace uh, to fire it, right? To to, uh, cast out any impurities. And when they pulled it out, if it had stood the test of the firing, and there were no flaws, no impurities, no cracks in the vessel, 
they would take their stylus, as they called it, and they would write across the bottom, Dokimas, approved. And as such, it would then be qualified for sale. So they would go through and build these things, and after they pulled it out of the fire, if it was completely intact, complete and perfect, they would stamp, this is ready for sale, this is approved. If it was not, if there were cracks or flaws or uh, something on there that showed that it was imperfect, they would, instead of writing dokimas, they would write a dokimas, which means not approved, disapproved, not suitable for sale. It signified that it was disqualified for use. So, so here, when you think about that word, this idea of stood the test, we are supposed to be the vessel that's put through the fire so that on the other side of the fire, the other end of the conveyor belt, that trial, that fire has proven, that, that trial, that fire has, has shown that we have withstood the trial, we've endured the trial, and we actually are more suitable because of it. That's, that's the purpose. As we talked about last week, that's the purpose of the trial. We are now, we are shown, and we are even convinced in our own selves that we are suitable. Not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done in putting us through the fire and supporting us and being alongside us in the fire and then pulling us out and saying, well done. Pulling us, pulling us out and saying, you are more complete than you were before. You get to verse 13. This is why, this is exactly why James is leading us this way, because he says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Now, look at this again. We've already talked about the role of the trial. We, the role of the trial is to, we go through the fire, and the fire is supposed to bring us out as uh, something that is more suitable. It's supposed to bring us out as something that is closer to God, bring us out as something that looks more like uh, the one who put it through the fire. The idea is the person who's created the vessel, they're like, I'm putting you into the fire until you look like what I intended you to look like when I made you. And so here he says, that's why it's a blessing to go through trials. He's re- re- going back to what he said earlier. That's why it's good for you. That's why you can take joy in going through trials. Why? Because when you withstand the test, when you are approved, then you receive the crown of life. Now, first, the crown of life uh, is, there can be a couple of meanings here uh, to this phrase. And James likely has both in mind. First, the crown of life is something that God gives his children when we see Jesus face to face. After we've persevered through all of life and enter into eternity, there's this idea of this reward, this crown that's there. And and second, and even more importantly, the crown of life is a reward from God that we receive most or more immediately at the end of a trial as we live each day. Every day we look back and go, Lord, I pray that I can end today with a crown. It's this quality of living, living life as God intends, knowing him, enjoying him. In the Greek, a crown is this word Stephanon. It's where we get the name Stephen and we get the name Stephanie. This idea of a crown, it should sound familiar. It's a a great name. The name or the word was used of like a laurel wreath 
that you would put on the head of a victorious athlete. So in some of the Greek or the Roman games, if you won a race or you won a battle or you won some type of competitive event, you would get this crown, this laurel wreath placed on your head. It was someone who endured the course, endured the trial, persevered, and was victorious. This is ultimately what James is saying. He's saying, listen, these trials, these things are, these things have a purpose. And the purpose isn't just to prove, hey, you can endure hard things. The purpose is you are going to be more complete and you get to walk out of this with this crown, this idea that you have endured and that you look more like the God who made you. You're living as God intended. Then James gets very real and he does something I'm so thankful he does here because he teaches us the difference between what a trial is and a temptation is. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Again, think about this. In, in, in trials, uh, when we, when we, in order to be able to differentiate between what a trial is and a temptation, this is what we said at the beginning of this sermon, a temptation is anything that turns us away from God. That's why he says this. That's why he says each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Anything that we allow to come in between us and persevering with God through trials, that becomes a temptation. You see, there's the persevering through the trial or there's the succumbing to our own sin nature as a result of the trial, which makes it a temptation. That's it. Either something is drawing us to God or drawing us away. There's no middle ground. Either something's drawing us to, and it doesn't mean necessarily drawing us to, I know more scripture now, or I had a better prayer life. It just means either I'm moving toward things that image him well, or I'm moving uh, into directions that don't image him. That's it. And so we've got we've to make sure we say, Lord, when I'm going through a difficult trial, is it something that is drawing me closer to you, or is my reaction uh, evidence that is drawing me further away from you. Because if it's drawing me further away from you, this isn't faith-infused reaction to trial. That trial has then become a temptation. And God isn't the author of temptation. Why? We could say that. See, sometimes we've gotten really confused with this and we'll say, well, that doesn't make sense. God, you know, sometimes people will say, how can God be a loving God, if he allowed these things to happen, he should have known that I would have been tempted by this. And since he knows I'm going to be tempted by this, this doesn't seem fair to blame me for being tempted. And it makes sense. Listen, I've thought that. We think that through. I could see the logic in that. The problem is we keep thinking that the temptation started as the temptation, but it doesn't. Anything God is the author of, it doesn't start as a temptation. It, is, it starts and its purpose is to be a trial. Our reaction to it shows when it becomes a temptation. The trial is supposed to perfect us. One of the hardest questions that comes up is why in the world would God place the, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden for Adam and Eve to even potentially sin and partake of it? What is that supposed to connote to us? Why is that there? Was it a trial or was it a temptation? Well, it started out, God's purpose was a trial. 
having this here, having this potential option here, but telling you to obey me and trust me versus trusting yourself, that was a trial. And the trial was supposed to make them and us be more complete. How do we be more complete? When we learn how to rely on God instead of ourselves. How do we become more complete? When we decide to trust in his knowledge and not our own understanding. When we trust his vision and not what we see. So Adam and Eve had the great opportunity, the great trial to be even more thoroughly perfected in their relationship with God by having the choice to do a thing, but trusting God more than trusting themselves. That was just, that was the trial. The temptation came when? When they were tempted to to be and see things like God does. That's what they were tempted with by the serpent. You won't surely die. You will know things the way God does. You will see things the way God, you will be like God. That was the temptation. So the moment temptation happens, the moment that became real for them, they succumb to that temptation the same way we do. It it didn't begin as a temptation and God wasn't the author of that temptation. God authored the trial. Our sin made it temptation. And that's why when he says, after that desire, much like Adam and Eve there, when that desire is conceived, Then it gives birth to sin, to disobedience. And when that sin gets fully grown, it gives birth to death. That's what God, That's this is the first warning God ever gave. That's what it does, right? Because ultimately, sin, unrepented sin, being further away from God, ultimately death, real spiritual death, is complete separation from God. So, so this warning makes a lot of sense. Listen, be very careful in what it is you're boasting in, what it is you take great value in, what it is that you think brings value to you uh, and, and brings and what things about you will commend value to other people. Be very careful because that's going to determine whether your trials are temptations and those temptations will bring you further and further away from God, which is why he ends here. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That phrase can be really uh, kind of frustrating or confusing. First fruits of his creatures. What does that mean? What is he really getting at here? Yes, every good and perfect gift comes from above. We often will throw that out at a wedding and things like that. But do you realize that the good and perfect gift he's talking about here is actual trials and how trials will actually actually make us more complete and more perfect? You never hear anybody say, man, that trial was so good and perfect from God. And yet, faith-infused wisdom and a faith-infused way of viewing our trials will make us say that. Because that is, those trials are such an incredible way that God makes us look more like him. Which is why when we talk about first fruits of creation, there are other places where the scriptures talk about Jesus being the first fruits of creation, us here being first fruits of his creatures. What does that mean? It doesn't necessarily, first fruits here doesn't mean uh, first in chronology. It doesn't mean uh, the first in order. It simply means something that is preeminent above other things. It doesn't mean we're preeminent above other people. What he's saying here is we were meant to image God, to reflect the image, to reflect the icon of God. We were meant to show something that says we are, we are not mere animals. We are not uh, mere uh, beings that are led by our basest desires. We are not mere beings that are automatons that just can't function without following whatever uh, knee-jerk feelings and emotions that we have. 
when we have been redeemed by God, we now we don't have to obey whatever we feel like is our natural self. We get to obey who God is. We get to, to, to be remade into something else. We get to, to, to take some of the things that we know are not right about us and exalt and rejoice in the way that God is changing, shaping, and rearranging those things in our lives. That is something we should take joy in because then we do become the first fruits. We do become, God is saying, anything that looks more like me is preeminent above the things that don't look like me. The aspects in your life that are, look like Jesus, that look more like God, that takes higher precedent. That takes higher priority. That brings the greatest value. First fruits have always been the most valuable stuff. When people would uh, bring the first fruits from the garden, that meant the top choicest items in their garden. When you brought your first fruits as a sacrifice, that meant your top choicest animals as a sacrifice. Being the first fruit of God's creatures means the things that look most like him are the top things. These are the things that should be valued the highest. So in order for us to be more valuable, in order for us to, to see ourselves as valuable, there's nothing wrong with looking for value. Just look for value not within, but look for value up. Look for value where God is. God says, this is how I value you. And when you see that your greatest value is in me, you are a first fruit of my creatures. Now you know what you get to boast in. You can boast in all the attributes in you that reflect the attributes in me. When we see our trials this way, when we see the purpose of trials, we are able to respond with joy. Maybe not always happiness. Maybe not always with glee but with joy because there's this overarching theme that any of these things that God has allowed, even if it's difficult, somehow, some way, in a way I don't understand, God is perfecting. God is recreating. God is making us valuable. So may we be a church that is so rooted, not in boasting in what we can do, boasting in what we've done, boasting in what we have. But our greatest boasting is in the way that God has humbled us by his perfect finished work in the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and how that enables us, whether poor or wealthy, to take the role of a servant, to say my ultimate goal is to be his servant, which means I can't help but be your servant. James is going to go back to that again. May we be a people that is so rooted in his attributes that that's where we find our greatest value. Not because we're so great, not because we're so cute and wonderful. We may be those things, but because God is so much greater and who he is, is what is best for us. Let's pray. Father, you are truly good and your mercy does endure forever. You tell us this, you remind us of this, and yet, God, when we see the things that we have around us, when we are going through difficult times, it can be so difficult to feel like anything is good in that. God, I pray that you would continue to impress upon our hearts this idea, this truth, that you are truly still refining us, that even in our trials, we can have real joy and that we can learn what it means to boast in you and not in, our, uh, in and of ourselves. Father, I pray that whether we find ourselves with material possessions or without, 
that we would take joy in the ways that you have exalted us as your children, but also that we would be humbled in the ways that uh, that remind us that nothing that we do on our own uh, is eternal and nothing that we do on our own brings any lasting value. That our greatest value is walking in you, close to you, loving you, following you, being humbled by you, being exalted in you. We thank you for this work, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's receive God's benediction, this final blessing, this reminder of the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, the one who perfectly matures us, the one who enables us to deal with things, whether we have or whether we don't have. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It's to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.